Hey guys, if you've been tuning in over the last couple of months, you've heard all about the GameTime app and how it can save you some serious cash on last-minute tickets to sports, concerts, and all types of shows. This would be a perfect time to fire up the GameTime app. Uh, the Raptors play home games over the holidays aplenty. They play at home on the 22nd, the 25th, the 29th. If you need New Year's plans, they've got you covered with a New Year's Eve game in Toronto. And now, GameTime is hooking you up for the holidays with a $10 credit. Here's what to do. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store. Click on the My Ticket section of the app, create an account, and then under the Billing section, redeem the code THEATHLETIC. Once again, that's THEATHLETIC. All one word for $10 off your first purchase. That's free money. Credit is only available for the first 1,000 people who redeem the code, and it expires at the end of the year on December 31st as the Toronto Raptors host the lowly, lowly Cleveland Cavaliers once again. So make moves quick and score last-minute tickets with the GameTime app. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Raptors Reasonless Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Joining me on the line, Eric Green, and in the background, I think I hear Walter. Um, no, not Walter. No, no, Walter is no. right here on the. You got mice then. Right here on the couch, uh, just looking at the wall. So uh, I, I can't. Uh, yes, no, it's another creature. How's Walter doing? He's all right. We were uh, we were just outside. I was walking him. He's he likes the snow, so and it's not a too windy of a day, so it was okay. Uh, I was listening to your other podcast, which this week was on uh, the Weaker Than's reconstruction site, and I lost track of time, which, as you know, is why I was about two minutes late to to start recording this. Uh, and I the only acceptable excuse for being yeah and like the weaker thens were one of my favorite bands last decade if you remember back to the Discman era of music listening oh yeah I had left and leaving in there for quite some time uh as I was roaming the campus of Ryerson University uh I guess I have a few hot takes one is that their line of demarcation is actually left and leaving and like between fallow and left and leaving is when they change the most, not between left and leaving and uh, reconstruction site. Uh, that would be my first okay. take. And I would also say left and leaving, while aside, aside from aside, which is a ridiculous thing to say, is not a pop punk record at all. It is a bit harder in general and rockier than reconstruction site. But it doesn't sound, you know, that like late 90s, early 2000s pop punk sound. It doesn't really have that to me um, other than a side. I'm, def- I'm defined by that. Yes. Sound. Uh, and yeah, ultimately, I would take Left and Leaving over Reconstruction Site. So I'd agree with Justin Trudeau, as I sometimes do and sometimes do not. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and say one's better than the other. Uh, but that one was, that one had a bigger impact on me. It's, it's almost surely an entirely personal, you know, personal memory type thing. We should probably talk about the Raptors. And since you mentioned, since you mentioned Justin Trudeau, we can pivot to something else that was (laughs) two-faced. Go ahead. (laughs) Pivot to something else that was two-faced. The Toronto Raptors (laughs) victory over the Detroit Pistons on Wednesday night. Guys, that's just a joke. Please don't be mad. You it could have gone in my head. Sorry. You could have gone with a liberal pun too. No. Uh, somehow, I, I don't know how. Like their liberal approach to, uh, I don't know. Their liberal approach to having all their players injured. Yeah, they they uh, they could take it or leave it. Yeah. Anyway, the Toronto Raptors. Rather take and get. Since we yeah, they're taking it hard. <laughs> since the last time we talked to, to you, the Toronto Raptors have won three straight games which is nice. They beat the Brooklyn Nets 110-102 in a mostly uneventful Saturday night game uh, at home. They beat the Cleveland Cavaliers 133-113 in a game that felt like it was a 40-point game the entire time on Monday. And then they visited the Detroit Pistons and won 112-99 to Wednesday in what was basically a home game because Raptors fans travel so well to Detroit. Within that victory, disaster. 
in the first quarter, Marc Gasol's coming back in transition defense, takes his hand, puts it to his left hamstring, uh, comes up lame, tries to get in the way of someone driving to the basket, but mostly is clear that he's done. Motions to the bench. He wants out, goes to the locker room almost immediately. The team says he's done for the night with a left hamstring strain. Then in the fourth quarter, Norman Powell tries to fight through a Blake Griffin screen, hits his left shoulder, and immediately goes down in a heap. He looked not only in pain, but very frustrated. You'll remember at the start of last year, something very similar happened to Norman Powell on his left shoulder. Uh, it was a subluxation that was caused by hitting Rudy Gobert on a screen, and it cost him 21 games. We don't have updates on either of those players as of this recording, uh, but things don't look great on either front. Eric, how you feeling, man? Yeah, it's suboptimal. Uh, sounds like the Raptors are going to have Fred Van Vliet back, if not Friday, on Sunday, sometime very soon, which certainly helps with the Norman Powell injury. Uh, you feel, I mean, first of all, you feel incredibly bad for Powell, who has been dogged by the same consistency questions for like the last three years, basically, if not longer and was finally starting to contribute as a scorer, definitely, and and elsewhere, and, and you know, was providing that sort of secondary attacking uh, that is necessary on this roster. So it sort of sucks, you know, assuming it's the same type of injury and not worse, which isn't necessarily, uh, uh, which isn't a certainty, uh, he could be out until right before the trade deadline or something like that. So that's going to affect the Raptors. Uh, it, it's, I mean, that's the one I feel worse for, like just on a personal level. Uh, not that people getting injured <laughs> are things you need to rank in terms of who you feel bad for. I, I think with Mark Gasol, something like this, you can always say after it happens, it was inevitable, but he has played a lot of basketball and is on the older uh, end of the spectrum of when people still play professional basketball. I don't think either of other, either of us is like terribly surprised something like this happened. They talked about load managing him in training camp that never really happened other than in training camp, uh, you know, partly because of Serge Ibaka's own injury. Uh, you know, they, I, I've spoken enough and written enough about why I think Gasol is incredibly important to this team. Uh, they're going to have to play smaller a lot, you know, with sort of Chris Boucher, Pascal Siakam, front Eric, lines. you can't blow through all the talking points in one answer. Well, you said, how am I feeling? Uh, how so... you are feeling is bad. That's the answer. <laughs> okay. You just This is a Triple H level open the show promo. Okay. Wow. Unbelievable. Just, just well, now I'm, I'm all flustered. I'm sorry, man. Anyway, these were all the questions that I had queued up to ask you about all the fallout from this kind of stuff. Um, so if I may. You, you may. Go so ahead. You, feel, I, 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 you have never talked too long in a row. So I, you know, <laughs> my bad. My bad. I, I won't deign to interrupt your podcast again. Uh, go ahead. Man, I just didn't want us to get to the end of that question and be like, okay, podcast is over. I know you're looking out. I know you're looking out. You know this is all in jest, or some in yeah. jest, at least. Yeah. Some in jest. I, if we I understand if we were still titling, If we were still titling albums this, or podcast episodes, are we? I don't know. Okay. We would probably call this one some in jest. Yes. Rondé Hollis Jesterson. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, anyway, you had a question, Blake? My point was just that you're the lead writer, not the lead podcaster. So we have to share here, even though we don't on the actual. Uh, I, I, I was setting you up for that, so we're back on yes. we're back on track. Okay, so you feel in terms of how you feel, you feel worse for Norman Powell and less surprised for Marcus. Yes. Okay. Fair. Fair summation. Let's let's look at the fallout of each of these in one at a time, uh, just because obviously one's in the backcourt, one's in the front court. There are some questions about how, and, and again, we don't know a timetable right now. I don't want to assume the worst and think Powell re-subluxated his shoulder and it's another 20 games. Um, but with Fred Van Vliet maybe back soon, that takes care of some of those minutes. Really, I mean, Powell was up playing in the, the mid-30s. Nor uh, Fred Van Vliet would, I think, assume, reassume his starting lineup spot and 
assume those minutes. Uh, it's going to mean a lot of Patrick McCaw, and that is someone who you wrote about this week and someone who has actually played pretty well since he came back from injury. But Eric, refresh us a little bit on what you've seen from McCaw so far and more more notably what you see through Nick Nurse's eyes that has pushed McCaw into the high 20s for minutes lately and could keep him there with Norman Powell out. Yeah, it's not that I think like he's been great or anything. Uh, the article I wrote was sort of trying to explain how a player gets into a coach's good books or, you know, quote unquote doghouse. Uh, and I do think there are some mitigating or complicating factors, I should say here, which is, you know, Nick Nurse seems to implicitly trust everybody who was a Raptor last year more than anybody who wasn't in general. I think that's, you know, that's the trend at least. But McCaw isn't, you know, it was funny, like hearing him mentioned as an agent of chaos last year. Like I don't, he's really just stable to me. Like he's not gonna, the way he's going to screw up is by not shooting. Like that is, that is what could screw things up on the floor in terms of how the Raptors work, but he's going to be in the right places. He's going to make smart cuts and he's defensively, like, even if he isn't a shutdown defender, I had one member of the the media core come up to me and say, you know, if there's going to be a one-way defensive player on the floor, like you want him to be like, like Hollis Jefferson, who's like in your face and can get, uh, can get, you know, the primary defender on, uh, you know, can, can guard the primary scorer. And yeah, sure. But it's also nice to throw someone out there who's going to not screw up the schemes and who's going to know where to help and who's going to know when to help and when not to. So I think this is a long way of saying that what Patrick McCaw does out there is within the Raptors' schemes. And when a player like, and I used Hollis Jefferson, but it could also stand for Terrence Davis maybe uh, a little bit less, like they're getting out of their quote-unquote roles more often. Uh, so McCaw, like, you just have less of a chance of a blatant screw-up or, like, blowing up a play on either end. Uh, and I think that's mostly what I've seen, and I think he's been, you know, other than some of his shots not falling, I think he's mostly been good. Yeah, I thought he's been better than my expectation anyway. Statistically, we're talking about a 127-minute sample here, so it's not perfectly representative his true shooting percentage is poor his turnover rate is sky high uh, but also somebody just somebody just tweeted us to tell him his turnover rate is sky high it is but it's also in 127 minutes and two of those games were returning from injury last time and i don't know however many of these games are also returning from injury so i'm a little willing to see past turnovers in small samples when guys are just getting back and haven't been in rhythm or whatever. Um, I do think he should have been credited with the turnover last night when he performed a step back to clear himself out for a three with like one second left on the shot clock and instead grenaded it to OG Ananobi, who then had to <laughs> miss the three at the shot clock. I respect the not wanting to hurt your percentages, but that was a, that was a bad one. I think, I think that th the issue people have sometimes with McCaw one is that, like, there's just not a lot going on because even when he's the de facto point guard, he's not the lead ball handler, and it's a lot of making the right pass in transition. Um, defensively, you know, sometimes I think he fought... Like, the data does not suggest he's nearly as good a defender as Nurse seems to believe he is. They might be seeing, to your point, something more schematic. I thought Wednesday was a good example of when his kind of jittery defense works better where he can lose Derrick Rose and get back on him because of his length and his quickness. Um, he kind of, you know, he can get lost on a screen and still recover, which is fine within the Raptors concept because they're usually dropping back with the center. Um, you see some of it, I think. So I think the fact that there's not a lot happening, the fact that sometimes his scampering on defense maybe looks like a mistake rather than within the scheme. And then the big one is that Patrick McCaw's minutes at least when the team is fully healthy, are coming at the expense of a Terrence Davis or a Matt Thomas, or if 16 seconds were not enough for you on Wednesday, Malcolm Miller. Um, so I think, you know, there's this contrast between how Nurse and the team, how Nurse talks about McCaw, how the team rewarded McCaw with two years, eight million, fully guaranteed, 
and then how fans see the other options. And, and maybe that's a question of floor versus ceiling where when Terrence Davis is really on, he looks significantly better. But when Terrence Davis is having a rough rookie night, you can understand why uh, the coach maybe prefers a guy like McCaw. If Norman Powell is going to miss a significant amount of time, they're probably both still in the rotation anyway. Uh, but do you think do you think Nurse's confidence level with McCaw kills Davis in the rotation once guys are healthy? Yeah, that's. I still think there's going to be a place for Terrence Davis. Yeah, miss Not, a saga. I, I, <laughs> well, first of all, sorry, I don't think sorry, would, sorry. I don't think that would be the worst thing in the world for like a few games if everybody is ever healthy on this team, which is looking increasingly like that won't be the case. But I think the thing, you know, the biggest thing you can point to right now is while he's making the correct process decisions and, and like looking for the right things, his playmaking is still a bit labored and, and he's still throwing some passes that he's not able to or, or just doesn't see quickly enough. Uh, and, and that's really what the Raptors need right now as, uh, you know, this is both via the Powell, I mean, Van Vliet certainly, but now Powell and Gasol, who are, you know, playmakers in their own way, they need that secondary guy to help take the load off uh, what you would hope are the big three once they, once Van Vliet is back. Uh, and if he's making errors as that guy who takes the swing pass and starts to drive, that's not something they can afford as much. But I think like his shot, you know, if it's even close, if it's been even close to real, they're going to need at some point. I think, you know, Norman Powell, while he was playing the greatest, you know, the best scoring basketball again of his career, you know, his History says he's inconsistent, so I, I could see a world in which this team, while healthy, is sort of going back and forth from option A and option B. And I can see a world in which Dick Nurse moves away from Patrick McCaw. Like, you know, he's not going to, you know, I, I think he's talked a lot about how, how McCaw's been blowing him away. But, you know, I, I don't think that means you have to pencil him in for 20 minutes for the rest of the year, no matter what the what the rotation and what the roster and what the dudes, what the bench with dudes and suits looks like. So, you know, I think right, if everybody were healthy right now, yes, he'd probably be on the outside looking in similar to a Chris Boucher, uh, maybe a bit behind a Chris Boucher in terms of, you know, his track to minutes. But I certainly don't think that's, going to be the case throughout the year uh, unless everything happens as you would expect, which it never does, right? Well, speaking of Chris Boucher, the other injury, as good as Norman Powell was playing, we just talked about how even if Fred Van Bleek comes back and Norman Powell's out, there still might not be enough minutes for people to be happy with the usage of Terrence Davis. Uh, Matt Thomas could be back sometime soon-ish. They're much better equipped for something like this in the backcourt than they are in the frontcourt. Marcus all played eight minutes Wednesday. He uh, forced three turnovers in those eight minutes. It was really great. Because um, he's he was, a genius. Yeah. Because he's, he's a genius. He's the best. So Serge Ibaka played awesome. In 31 minutes, he had 25 points, 13 rebounds, and two assists. However, Andre Drummond had six offensive rebounds. Serge Ibaka picked up five fouls. Uh, there are some concerns. So the biggest of these concerns is probably that Marcus Gasol has the best on-off impact on the team so far this year. The Raptors are the Raptors outscore opponents by 10.8 points per 100 possessions when he's on the floor, and they are outscored by 1.1 points per 100 possessions when he's off the floor. Um, I actually think Siakam's on-off is slightly larger, but Gasol would be second. Um, and Gasol also has the best net rating on the team, as well as the best defensive rating, other than weirdly Stanley Johnson. But uh, <laughs> I don't think we have. I think to we could throw that him. one out anytime soon yeah so the Gasol injury is big even when he hasn't been shooting he's been a huge driver of the team's success he's been a borderline all defense candidate even though he's ground bound at this point um, his intelligence his communication his um, not his verticality lists rim protection all of those things are big factors that the Raptors are going to miss 
Serge Ibaka offers a little bit more scoring punch, especially now that the Lowry Ibaka pick and pop chemistry seems to be back. Uh, Ibaka's a little more aggressive on that end. Maybe a better offensive, not maybe, he's a better offensive rebounder. Um, and then he offers a more traditional semblance of rim protection. But the Raptors are going to lose a bit here. They're going to lose some on defensive rebounding. They're certainly going to lose some of their playmaking. Um, you know, maybe some of the communication level stuff on defense. And then more concerningly, behind Ibaka, who already might not be the best matchup for Andre Drummond types, you have Chris Boucher, who played six minutes even though Gasol was out and I think doesn't have the team's full confidence against the bigger centers. And you have Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. Uh, they called up DeJuan Hernandez from the 905. They pulled him out of the G League Showcase in Las Vegas this weekend for extra depth. Um, he has been pretty up and down with the even not literally up and down between the 905 and the Raptors, even though that's been the case. But he's been pretty up and down with the 905. Um, so I think you're looking at a situation where when Ibaka was out, you saw a lot of Hollis Jefferson as the de facto center next to Siakam or Ananobi or kind of three wing lineups to cover that spot. And if Boucher was playing, maybe it's next to the starting center. Uh, maybe he's playing and he's the tallest guy on the floor, but he's not functionally playing center. I think the Raptors are back there. And the options to fill in behind Gasol are less encouraging, I think, than the ones to uh, paper through Norman Powell's injury. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Gasol's like, to an extent, his offense was coming his shooting was coming around not that i really consider that much of it like that meaningful uh it's bad he's crucially important to what they do uh you don't like to see i, I mean more often with knees than anything else you don't like to see non-contact injuries um he's you know like you said he's crucial he's just key to what they do and there's a big drop off you know I'll, I guess I'll ask you what you think of Dewan Hernandez after after we get you know through the options but they're just they're at a, they're in a size problem when they run into a into a bigger team and like if you're playing Philly and Serge Ibaka's in foul trouble like you're zoning up a lot probably <laughs> or, or trying to at least um and you know Pascal Siakam is acting as your center and as he <laughs> you know you don't necessarily want him taking on the bigger players in the league on defense as he has such a big offensive load it's a problem is there anything we can expect from Dewan Hernandez or is it still just fouls with him more or less. Yeah, I, look, he shows some encouraging things from a skill perspective. He can move with the ball pretty well in the open court. Um, he hits the glass hard in part because they empower him to run if he gets a defensive rebound. And then he has like, he has a neat bag of tricks around the rim. Like when he was in college and when they drafted him, one of my points was that he finished over the same shoulder every single time, no matter what he was doing in the post. And he's gotten away from that now. He has some juice to like his three to 10 foot game where he can throw floaters off of um, kind of different angles and he'll use the glass well. But so far, he has really not finished well with the 905. Um, he's had some trouble, some trouble around the rim. I don't know how much of that is. You know, he hadn't played in a year. He's not used to this level of physicality because while the G League is a step down um, from the NBA talent wise, it is there are a lot of big physical centers and rebounding is, uh, you know, probably the most readily available skill down there. So there's a lot of there's a lot of competition around the rim at that level. So, um, you know, he's been fine. I haven't been discouraged by him. I think part of the inconsistency is probably that he was up and down so much and then also suffered a thumb injury that kept him out a little while. That team's also just been in a weird place where um, not only has he been in and out, Shamori Pond's been in and out, um, O'Shea Brissett's been up and down a ton and used more NBA days than expected. Most of their second unit pieces have been hurt. And now Devin Robinson, their top scoring option, has been hurt a while. So that team's dealt with as much as the NBA club has, and it's made it kind of tough to... Uh, evaluate a guy like Hernandez in these small, brief samples. Um, I don't think he'll figure into the rotation really with Gasol out, and we don't know the severity of Gasol's injury. So you know, if that's a if that's a 15 gamer, maybe he does. If it's a three or four gamer, he probably doesn't. Um, but he's he's shown enough that you know he, it would be cool to see him get some garbage time time. And if Ibaka gets foul trouble and you don't want to go small against an opponent, 
I mean, he's a big body that that tries hard and tries to use his body well. So I wouldn't, I don't think it would be a disaster if he played a couple minutes. I just don't think he's, you know, ideally he's not there yet. Um, so that now, now my concern kind of becomes: is this, does this slow his development a little bit with another up and down segment where he's not getting a ton of minutes? But that's what those depth pieces are for. Yeah. Well, there's also, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. They could look to cut us, but cut somebody likely Malcolm Miller to add another big body which is an option they could I don't do think that. it's happened I don't think it's happening yet but maybe they see it's important at some time just something to keep in mind uh it's possible we thought that they yeah. might do that for a third point guard and now maybe they need to do it for a third center at some point we'll see that's what that flexibility is there for Eric we are both uh athletes in our early to mid 30s like Marcus Gasol. Are you worried, exactly. is this in your head now that, you know, this can happen to guys like us? And at your uh, next rec league game tonight, I think you're going to be, you're going to be. A no, we, we finished last week, but I am oh. dealing with a repetitive stress injury in my big toe and a, like a three month calf strain. So uh, I should, I should probably just take several weeks off from exercise, but then I'll get even fatter. I have leaned into, uh, when you describe me as built like a brick shithouse, I've decided to just, you know, ditch the athleticism brick. side of things. And yeah, <laughs> um, I did yesterday, I did like a one rep max test. So I, with bench press, deadlift, squat and overhead press, I just like built up and tried to see what my one rep max was for each of them. Um, it was like a two hour workout and I am dead today. I'm toast. But I don't think you'll be able to drive through me. Although you're not playing in the Raptors Republic tournament on January 19th anyway. Uh, I'm not. No. Damn. Nobody asked me to be a member of their team, and I don't have any friends, so I can't form my own team. Damn. Well, that sucks. Well, maybe Reynolds will need someone. <sighs> Screw that guy. I don't. Wait, maybe you could play for my team if my uh, my trip back, I'm not home in time from that bus from Canton. Do you have any celebrity ringers this year? Uh, yes. Well, I would say not celebrity ringers. There are some celebrities playing, but I don't know if, uh, I don't know if they would count as ringers. Okay. Anyway, Eric, we're talking a lot about physical fitness, but there's another side of the game that's just as, just as important. Talking about mental fitness. Calm, the number one app for sleep and meditation, has teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. Uh, LeBron and Calm know that your mind is like any other muscle in your body, and Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, have less stress, and perform at your best. For a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron in using Calm with a 40% discount to an annual membership at calm.com slash raptors. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash raptors. That's calm, C-A-L-M dot com slash raptors. Eric. I think that's, I mean, the injury followed is what people want to hear about for our Toronto Raptors, their Toronto Raptors. Uh, the week ahead, they have, they host the Washington Wizards without Rui. They host the Dallas Mavericks, probably without Luka Doncic. And then they go visit the Indiana Pacers, and then it's Christmas. What are you, what are you feeling for the, the upcoming week? Am I picking the record here for the first time? No, no, just how do you feel just... about it? Um, I think it's not the worst time to be short at uh up front you know Kristaps Porzingis while super talented isn't like a banger or anything uh Washington they have some bigger dudes but nobody you're worried about you know beating you and they they you know they they will get into a high-scoring three-point launching game. <laughs> Don't worry about it. So the Raptors can do that with them. Uh, you know, maybe Indiana presents a bit of a bigger issue uh, at the end of that. Uh, so, uh, you know, for all the things we talk about, we talked about that's why this week will be interesting to see how some of the pieces further down below uh, factor in, see how Fred Van Vliet, assuming he comes back, reacclimates himself. Um, but, you know, in terms of strength of schedule and just the types of teams that, uh, are on the docket, 
I think they can make do this week. Uh, it becomes a bigger problem once you, uh, maybe once you're into the new year. Uh, and the Boston, the Boston back-to-back is, uh, you know, it was going to be ch- tough anyway. So it also figures to be tougher now. Christmas is ruined. It already was ruined. Well, Hanukkah starts on Sunday, doesn't it? Hanukkah's ruined too. Uh, Hanukkah does start on Sunday. Very good. Very good. I got you. All right, Eric, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk to Dan Robson of The Athletic Canada, who wrote that tremendous Bobby Webster feature at theathletic.com slash Raptors or slash Toronto or slash NBA. You can find it all sorts of places because it ruled. And we're going to bring Dan on and talk a little bit about that, a little bit about Bobby Webster, a little bit about the New York Knicks coming up after this. All right, we're back. Eric and I are being joined by our colleague, Dan Robson. Dan, what's going on, buddy? Hey, nice to see you guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. No, oh, appreciate it, man. Nice to uh, nice to chat. Uh, you know, pre- preferably there'd be beers like the other night, but this will do too. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. But uh... yeah, we had the athletic Christmas party the other night. So for those that's uh, you know real, real deep inside baseball, Dan, you guys might know since you're Raptors fans, wrote the excellent feature that we had up at the Athletic last week. Searching for Bobby Webster, the untold story of how one of the NBA's youngest GMs helped the Toronto Raptors win a title. It is just about the first substantial thing ever written about Bobby Webster. His name now comes up when you Google it because there's a story about him. Dan has done, uh, Dan did a great job with this story. And man, first of all, uh, excellent job. But mostly we're, we're curious about what the process was like for this, doing this enormous, amazing feature on someone who normally doesn't give interviews like this and especially this level of access uh well thanks but it actually took um quite a bit of time it started um back in i guess it was in early september i met with bobby uh at his office at the ovo center and, and basically spent about an hour uh pitching him on the idea of cooperating with the story he uh he was very reluctant he has been in the past and as the story kind of gets into he's uh, a pretty behind the scenes kind of guy pretty shy kind of guy and doesn't like to put himself out there. So uh, we spent about an hour just off the record talking. Um, and then afterwards, uh, about a week later, he texted me and said he was, he was interested in, in being part of the story. So that was very helpful once I was able to get access to, to him, obviously. Um, and then we kind of went from there and had um, uh, probably we had hours of interviews, actually. We, we spoke at length, um, probably, I would probably say about half a dozen times over the next couple of months. And, and that's sort of how it all came together. Dan, uh, Again, uh, as Blake said, a remarkable piece, uh, especially on a topic that has been not exactly forthcoming to make him start, <laughs> make him uh, himself a part of the narrative of the Raptors' journey, and he's definitely been a big part. Uh, I'm interested. How did you decide to start where you did? Because you know you sort of give his background, and that's almost told chronologically, but you. You actually open up in a bar on the eve of Game Six, sort of. Uh, you know, my impression is like a divey bar, just uh, with him and his friend. Why did you start there? So when I was chatting with Bobby um, about that, I kind of just kind of I was looking around for anecdotes and asking questions about you know what he did the night before, and it was actually uh, an anecdote that a friend of his had mentioned to me about um, visiting Bobby from Hawaii, uh, Joe, one of his best friends. And so I went back and asked Bobby about it. He helped fill in the details on it. But the reason I, I thought it would be a good place to start um, was because it, it sort of incorporated all of the, um, the things that I kind of wanted to then go on and say about Bobby. Um, the fact that nobody knew what his name was in the bar. He was kind of mysterious uh, being there that night because he didn't put himself out there and say, you know, I'm the general manager of the Raptors. Uh, he just sort of was a, an anonymous figure. Um, and, and the fact that in in sort of the the eve of the biggest moment of what would be the biggest moment of of his uh, young career, um, he was sitting with a friend from Hawaii who had come in to visit, um, and that is a huge part of of what I found to be uh, essential to Bobby's character is this sort of connection to his past, to his family and friends, to this inner circle. Um, and I think that once I was able to speak with those people and get a get a get a better picture from them about who he is, I was able to kind of figure out sort of what lies at, a, at the heart of, of this sort of mysterious executive. Did you get his reaction to, like, obviously it happened after the article went up, but he must have been devastated that Max Holloway lost. Uh, I actually didn't. I didn't talk to him. I, didn't, I, was, I should have texted him and asked him, but then I knew he was there. 
uh, in Vegas. And I think he left like right after the article came out. So we had exchanged a couple of texts, but I, uh, I haven't followed up. I'm sure he's devastated them. <laughs> I know, um, you know, this might be a bit too inside writerly for people. There are certain people who like have an outline before they start to write. And there are certain people who just get it out on the page and then reorganize. Which camp do you fall in? And, and has it always been that way? So I'd like to say that I'm uh, an exceptional outliner, as I should be, and as all writers obviously should be. But I am, um, I am not, it, for the record. <laughs> it, I, I find it, it's one of those things that's like you're, this, this is what's prescribed. And when I talk to other writers, I always sort of show them different kinds of outlines and say you should do this. In this sense, I always just kind of get frustrated with the outline process and just want to get to the writing. Um, but then sometimes, and I'm sure you guys have both experienced this, you get kind of stuck in an area um, and then you end up sort of like, I spent a couple hours trying to write this opening or something like that, which can be very um, time consuming. And this story was very time consuming to write. It took me um, a long time on top of all the interviews. I think we, I, I think I told you guys we had about 20, over 20,000 words of transcription with Bobby because I had to make sure I had like everything he had said right and could summarize it properly. But once I had, I, I had a, an outline, um, sort of a, a vague outline, I knew where I was going to begin and where I was going to end and that essentially it was going to be chronological. So there was that sort of uh, general framework that was just sort of understood from the out outset. I, I wasn't going to meander um, in sort of different different areas of his life. So it wasn't sort of a you know, sort of a classical, like this is word by word my outline, but there was sort of a, a mental outline for sure. Uh, one thing that didn't make the story, but I'm curious about, uh, did he talk about me at all? <laughs> did he talk about you all? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. All, we, I, it, was all, it was all off the record. I can't tell you exactly what he said. Unbelievable. <laughs> I'm going to take that in the worst possible way because <laughs> that's, how, that's how I do things. Um, I'm curious less about the story and more about um, some of what other people said about Bobby Webster within. Specifically when Masai Jiri and Jeff Weltman both basically said, yeah, he's going to be running his own shop one day. Obviously, the structure right now in Toronto... Masai Jiri is the the face and the guy who goes to Larry Tannenbaum and the board to you know get the approval on things. While Bobby, Dan Tolzman, Teresa Resch, the whole team does a lot of um, collaborative decision making and collaborative planning. The fact that Masai and Weltman and pretty much everyone else are so certain that Webster is going to run a team someday. Uh, I'm not asking you for you know I'm sure Bobby wouldn't talk about this super openly anyway. But there have been rumors recently perhaps leaked from a certain president's camp, I'm not sure, uh, that there is heavy interest in Masai Ujiri in New York, as there always is. Uh, right after the finals, it came out that the Washington Wizards were interested. Do you, do you see, do you get the impression that Bobby Webster's name could start coming up in those same kind of things sometime soon, just based on how strong his reputation is around the league? I think that uh, without a doubt, uh, his name has to be um, in some conversations. I, I mean, I, I did speak with Bobby um, about that directly. Um, he, you know, he wasn't, as you said, he wasn't going to uh, give me uh, a direct answer on that. He's going to be quite careful about that. I mean, I, I think that what the piece really shows is that he's been very calculated throughout his career about when to make the decisions he makes um, and, and sort of only to do it in a situation that he knows is right. But the fact that, like Masai told me, directly you know he's going to lead his own team one day and, and Jeff Weltman said the exact same thing um, you know and, and in both cases pretty much unprompted I wasn't really pushing for um, that I think it just sort of shows that across um, the league well well he's sort of unknown to the outside world I think within the NBA's inner circle uh, his work is very well known and I, I don't I think that inevitably, if, if Bobby wants it, um, he will have the opportunity to be uh, to, to sort of be the head of an entire organization, whether that be in Toronto because, um, you know, Messiah has moved on or whether it be elsewhere. Um, I, I don't really know, but I definitely know um, that, that it's something that many people are, are thinking about. And many people speculated also in the comments of the story that there was some sort of um, sort of collusion, I guess, in the, uh, the timing of the story coming out. I swear that was just because I'm a slow writer. It had nothing to do with the fact that um, these rumors of Messiah were going to be coming out right, uh, right before that. It was just, uh, it was more my, uh, my inability to write quickly than anything else. Uh, here's, here's the brain genius move on my side is we know that Bobby shot down Messiah in the past to stay with the league office one more year. What if he leaves for 2020, 2021 
Um, the the CBA is up in 2021, or, or sorry, there's an opt out in 2021. I don't think that we're in any risk of a labor stoppage, but they may generally in these cases, the uh, league and the players union will tweak some of the some of the specifics that need tweaking. Bobby goes back to the league office to help with that, learns all the new loopholes that he, or, or sorry, reinserts <laughs> new loopholes into the CBA, then goes to run a team, uh, fuel armed with all these new loopholes, like, uh, you know, like last year at the trade deadline when uh, they basically created the Malcolm Miller rule because they were trying to do things the CBA had I, never I mean, even that thought would of. Be- in talking with Bobby, I think I, I mentioned it kind of at the end of the piece. We, I kind of had this whole, like, what's what's next for you? And and he said, I mean, he actually said, you know, who knows, maybe uh, I could, you know, one day go back to the NBA head office. And it was more of a rhyming off opportunities. I, don't, I wouldn't read too much into that as sort of a plan. But I will say I do think he's incredibly, um, for, for a low-key kind of guy, I do think he considers what's next a great deal. I'm not sure uh, how, how teams will feel about him going back in the NBA and then coming back out and running a team again one day. I'm not really even sure if there's any regulations. Really. I don't think there are, but I think that he'll, uh, you know, that's something that he, he'll definitely be, um, you know, in his mind. He'll always, in my mind, as a general manager, as a president, um, be the kind of uh, person who has uh, one step ahead when it comes to the inner workings of, of the CBA, whether he's authored the latest version of them or not. Um, high up in the story, you have a player agent quoted who says, Bobby is making a lot of the decisions in terms of everything they do. Masai is the lead is the lead role in the face of the program and obviously very involved, but Bobby is the driving force, at least for me, for a lot of the decisions they make. I, I mean, have it, as somebody who's written a story, like I under like you need a, st- a quote like that to sort of explain <laughs> yeah. his importance. But I think this has always been interesting to me and to fans. Uh, because the Raptors aren't very forthcoming with their decision-making process other than the vague idea that it's all very collaborative. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there, frankly, aren't many franchises that are going to come up and say, well, this guy makes all the decisions (laughs) and he he just uh, doesn't give us really anything to do. So what is your extent, uh, uh, to the extent that you know, what do you think is Bobby's like day-to-day like, what is he taking care of other than, like, the very high end of decision-making, which we can assume is besides? Uh, so my, my understanding is that, um, and, and from speaking with, you know, um, agents and, and also just actually speaking with, with Bobby and, and Teresa and other people in the office, I mean, they were, I think they were pretty forthcoming about that in that, like, Bobby does take care of uh, that quote-unquote day-to-day business. I, he speaks with agents directly. He negotiates contracts. Um, he, he basically comes to sort of helps create this sort of plan for what they're going to be doing. So obviously a very close eye on, on nine, the 905. Um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is that he's, he's basically sort of in charge of all the departments and checks in regularly. And then he goes to Masai. So Masai said to me, you know, he, he basically makes, makes it so I don't have to work as much as, as, uh, as I used to. And he kind of laughed at that. I mean, he, obviously Masai is still very, very busy and, and involved in everything. But um, I, I think the best way to describe it is sort of, um, you know, like Bobby's the person that's going to be in contact with, with for example, like the agent I spoke with or with um, the, the analytics department about what they're, what, they're, what they're seeing or what's happening with the coach. He checks in with Nick Nurse uh, all the time. So he had, and then what happens is he sort of talks to, to Masai. But Masai also, because he's, you know, he's the president, he's the face of the organization, is in the end, involved in all the decisions. But Bobby said to me that one of the things Masai does is he trusts us to do our job. So he expects us to come to him with new ideas and expects us to to sort of say, this is what we're doing and to be able to lay that out and and explain it. So there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of collaboration. And I know I mentioned it kind of sounds a bit cliche, but I think within that process, Bobby um, is the point man on a lot of these organizations and a lot of the the key, or a lot of these sort of, a lot of these, negotiations and a lot of the sort of the key decisions that this team is making. So to use an unfortunate metaphor right now, he's kind of the chief of staff to <laughs> Messiah's press. Yeah. And I think the one thing that I, exactly. And that's, a, that's actually a pretty, it is an unfortunate one timely, I guess, but yes, that's uh, that's one of them. The way I described it in the story and I don't know, I tried to make it make sense. It's sort of like, if you think of a, even a ship, like Messiah's like sort of the captain saying like, this is what we're doing, but Bobby's like the navigator deciding which direction they're going to go and sort of saying how they're going 
to get there in a way. So it's, it's, it's a lot of discussion. They do have a lot of meetings and, uh, and I, I know they, they I, I kept trying to press them for more examples of like, well, what exactly, like, give me an example of what you're doing. And, and he kind of said like, you guys are always looking for moments and examples. And he was, he's kind of, kind of making fun of the reporting process. And when, when we always need, uh, we always need specifics. So, uh, He's aware of what we're trying to do. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the job, right? It's like, like imagine an agent's hitting him up and trying to get a contract done. He's like, ah, you guys are always talking about guarantees and term, and ah, let's just say there's a contract. Who needs all these details? That's a good point. That's a very good. I should have brought that up. That's what I should have said when he, when he said that. So we all have jobs to do. Come on. <laughs> he respects that. Yeah. I was I was surprised to read um, just how big a hand and how passionate he is about the 905. Obviously, I've seen him out there before, um, but you know, I thought from the business side, I I was under the impression, and and it's probably still true that Teresa Resch had a big hand in kind of getting it there as fast as it got there, and then obviously Tolzman being the first general manager down there. While they do have this collaborative. Um, org structure where even now with Chad Sanders as the 905 GM, Bobby and Dan and the whole front office have input on those kind of decisions. Um, but yeah, I was a little surprised to read that. Were, was he, I don't really have a question here. I'm just, I was just a little surprised that it's that big a passion project for him. Yeah. I mean, it's something that he brought up when we were, we were chatting in one of our conversations and I was just, I was again, kind of doing what I was doing before, like trying to push for, I mean, what I was trying to get was like, okay, so when you came um, in 2013, like, what are, the, what can I peg to you? Like, what can I say this is what you did? Now he, just for the record, he doesn't say that he, he created 905 or was a part of it because he was very careful about not saying that, but he, he was very big on the, um, on the idea of a G League team. And it's become something as it, as it says in the story that he, you know, he follows closely in the idea of having this team close by that, where they can foster talent, where they can bring in, um, you know, potential projects like, like Tyler Ennis, this kind of thing. Like he's, he's very involved in that um but i think like even talking with Teresa and stuff i mean um they would say the group had a vision for what they needed and so it's hard to pinpoint exactly who was the first person that said you know we need a g league team um i don't think any of them frankly remember but they all played a role especially with um you know bobby and, and Teresa both being from the nba's head office they had um a, a lot of uh just sort of expertise in the inner workings of of working with the league in that way and i think that was also incredibly helpful I still remember the first the first question I ever asked Masai uh, with access was a terribly worded question about them not having a G League team yet, and he was not was not thrilled with my framing of the question. So I'm glad they have one now. I'm glad glad they got that done. I can used to be like, well, at least I was I was on the right track. Uh, Eric, you had another question here. We probably got to wrap after one more question. So have at it. Yeah. Um. So the, I mean, the whole the whole piece flirts with. The idea of like how not strange, but you know, it's not like this guy grew up wanting to be an NBA general manager, uh, but it flirts with the idea of what's he going to do next. And obviously, the most logical step is being, you know, in charge of his own team. Uh, having spent so much time with him and talked to talking to him so much, like, would you say that's his goal? Would you say being, you know, a foreign spy is his goal? Would you, <laughs> would you say, you know, being in the league office and maybe like being a right hand man to Adam Silver yeah. is his goal? Like, do you, after all that time, do you, are you any closer to what like he really wants? And he told me at one point he did mention that he might still be a spy. So we should be careful about that. Well, it wouldn't he, surprise me. His yeah. skin is too nice, though. He's, he's, <laughs> his skin routine is also something you tragically didn't ask about. I should have. I definitely should have. Um, he he basically. Um, I, I would say this. I, I think if I were to to, to wager on it, I, I do think that uh, a top NBA job as a, as a president is probably the way that that he would be leaning one day. I mean, it was something that he said back when he was an intern with the Orlando Magic, and, and as you said, it wasn't sort of this trajectory he thought about when he was a kid. It was something that when he, he loved basketball, when he realized he could apply, um, you know, his abilities intellectually to the Operation Basketball team as he was sitting in the, um, the an office in, with the Orlando Magic and working on a deal about a new arena with the city, not even really working in basketball operations. Um, he just realized there was a path there. And then every decision he made after that was, was made with the idea of becoming a GM in mind. So even when he was at the general, um, at the at the league office, um, and, and being part of stuff that was really interesting to him, um, he was going out and meeting with uh, general managers and player agents when he was volunteering 
to be part of all of these um, the the NBA events like the Combine and the All Star Game, and then he's making these decisions with an idea for what would put him in the best position for his next move, which was to become a general manager. I think in the way that we look at, you know, between general managers and presidents, I mean, obviously in the league that that presidential role has, has that high team and is, is in charge. So I do think um, I, I would lean towards him likely moving that direction. But, you know, we did have a couple of pretty introspective chats where we did talk about it. He has like, he has two young kids right now. Um, and he had his second uh, last year uh, and right before the, right before the playoffs started actually. And, uh, I think like he's you know he's thirty he's turned thirty five years old. He's sort of in this space where he's trying to think about what he wants um, and what what it will co- what, what what cost will come. He he looked at Masai and said you know Masai is a great example of a guy who can be president and still have a great family and, and do things well. And so I think he's looking at that example. But part of one of the, one of the things that's key to Bobby is that sort of where he came from, and in that sense, I mean that that family and and friends and that sort of core of, of keeping life kind of simple in that way. And I think that um, no matter what happens, Bobby's going to be trying to find a, a, a balance that fits his family um, more than he might have been thinking about, about you know, five, five years ago. Well, I think that would be a bad fit for being like a spy. Uh, <laughs> they tend to have complicated family lives. Yeah. <laughs> if, if the Americans has taught me anything yeah. and it has taught me everything, I think that'd be a bad fit for him now. Thrilling though, but yeah. Spy expert, Eric Green. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's fair. <laughs> All right, uh, guys, we've got we to gotta let Dan go here. Um, you can read that piece. Uh, it's called Searching for Bobby Webster, the untold story of how one of the NBA's youngest GMs helped the Toronto Raptors win a title. If you're listening to this and aren't already a subscriber, you can go to theathletic.com slash we the six. That's the number six, not S-I-X or six I-X. Theathletic.com slash we the six. Um, there are discount codes there to uh, get you trialed up and allow you to read Searching for Bobby Webster, Dan Robson's terrific piece on the Raptors general manager. Uh, you can follow Dan at Robson Dan on Twitter and keep an eye out for all his great work. Uh, his, an excellent piece he did on Ray Emery uh, is among the Athletics uh, Best of 2019 works as well. Um, Dan does excellent work all the time, including this Bobby Webster story. Dan, thanks so much for coming on, man. Oh, thanks so much, guys. It was fun. Cheers. All right, Eric, I will talk to you. We got to figure out a Christmas schedule. I'll talk to you at some point. Yeah, Christmas Eve, maybe, maybe Boxing Day. Who knows? See ya. <laughs>